The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles, if you would, and open them to the book of Leviticus, chapter 3. If you wonder how sermons are are put together and how a preacher begins to make sense of all the information that he gathers to to build a sermon, I would say that tonight is a, a classic example of being stumped and swamped with so much material that you just don't really know where to start. Uh, tonight's message, if, it, if you can call it that, I, I think, and I hate to say it this way, but it may be one that's not quite ready for prime time. Uh, what you're getting tonight will be uh, actually a sermon still in the formulation stages. Uh, sometimes I, I, I don't know what to say and, and how to get organized and how to get my feet off the ground and really take off working through all the material. Uh, we're studying these five offerings of the Old Testament and these offerings are not really all that difficult in their concepts. Uh, what you get here is basically information that you get in a lot of different sermons. And those sermons may not be about these offerings in the Old Testament, but if a preacher preaches Christ in spirit and in truth, then he'll hit on the very same things that we talk about in these sacrifices. And so studying the sacrifices gives us a, a good advantage in our Christian education because what they do is they bundle up many of the concepts that we have found throughout the Bible and they put it all right here in a very neat package that can be found without running from cover to cover throughout the Bible to try and find Christ. And so in these sacrifices you find many concepts that you learned in disjointed ways but they're just put all together here in a big picture showing us how things work together. Now, in discussing the five offerings, the, the, the two last offerings, the sin offering and the trespass offering, which we haven't got to yet, uh, those are the easiest ones uh, to talk about because they correspond to concepts that you're most familiar with. They take in the activity of the cross, uh, the suffering and death of Christ on the cross for sin and how Christ paid the debt of sin for us that we owe to God. And we're most familiar with that because there isn't, a gospel presentation that doesn't deal with that theme, talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And so you have multiple, even, well, as you know, thousands upon thousands of sermons that are preached about the cross. There are hundreds of songs that are written about the cross. The cross hangs on church buildings. It's on signs and on baptistries. Uh, many wear a cross as a necklace of jewelry. The other offerings or rather these offerings, uh, the, the sin offering and trespass offering, are, are easier. But they still stand for profound doctrines of the Christian faith. But unfortunately, these profound doctrines are often reduced to nothing more than what I said this morning. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But looking at the peace offering, it's much different. And I, I'm at a loss to describe the peace offering except to say that it was an offering that was at the very center of Jewish life. It was the core of Jewish life. It was a constant hands-on offering that was a part of every single day of Jewish life. And obviously we don't have a 
physical counterpart of that in, in Christianity today. And so we're concerned with symbolism. What, what does all this mean, the symbolism of these things? And we're finding out, and we'll find out in this offering, the symbolism of what it means to be a modern-day Christian. And the symbolism isn't really hard. But this symbolism of the peace offering is the most difficult and the most challenging. It is the hardest work that a Christian can do. In fact, series of messages, many, many messages, could not contain all the information that we need to know here. And you might wonder, why is that true? Why is this, this offering so different? Well, this offering represents almost everything that we do in, in church every Sunday. It's almost every teaching that you get in everyday living. It covers every practical aspect of what it means to be a Christian. All of that has its roots in the peace offering. And so tonight, as I introduce this, uh, I'm not quite sure that I have a sermon. Uh, I think I just need to talk, and maybe that's what this turns out to be, just a, a talk, a general talk with you about some things that, that came to me as I was having difficulty organizing all of these things into a simple outline. So maybe tonight is more of just a conversation, but a one-way conversation, because you don't get to talk. I'm going to do all the talking. But the underlying core message of this offering, the peace offering, is contentment. It's contentment with God, contentment with the Savior, contentment of the believer with God. It's about communion with Him, about communion with the Father through Jesus Christ who has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, uh, justification, redemption, all these wonderful things that we find in Jesus Christ. And this sacrifice was repeated so many times over and over and over in Israel, perhaps more than any other sacrifice, and it taught complete dependence upon God, that our lives are for the glory of God. Everything in us is for the glory of God, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, it is all for the glory of God. This offering is about having God on your mind the first thing when you get up in the morning. It's to have God on your mind all day long as you go through every single day. It's have God on your mind as the last thing before you close your eyes at night to go to sleep. This is about being consumed with God because God is actually the contentment of our life. Now, if you can imagine for just a minute a scene in Israel's camp on a typical day that there are two million people, perhaps as many as six million and they're all spread out, and they're camped around a courtyard that is surrounded by a linen fence. And on the inside of this court, there's a rectangular tent that has an altar that stands in the front, and there's a huge column of smoke that's rising from one end of that tent, and that smoke stands over, stationary, over that one end of the tent. And then there are priests that are busy on the inside of the courtyard as hundreds of animals are brought from thousands of families in Israel and they're all their tents, all of their tents are surrounding this focal point that's called the tabernacle. And there's the sound of animals, there are oxen that are bellowing, there are sheep, there are sheep that are bleeding, there are birds cooing, there is fire, and there are piles of ashes and blood that's continually being sprinkled. Now, could you see that and not think that Israel was consumed with thoughts of God? This is the main thing that they do. Religion is the centerpiece of everything. And so they're encamped around this courtyard. The whole nation surrounds it on every side. And every man, woman, and child, as soon as they get up in the morning, 
This is the first thing that they see as they walk out of their tents. They see that smoke rising from the tabernacle. They see all the activity that's going on. And when they get up in the morning, they are immediately confronted with God. Everywhere to them, it's God. Now, it's not a mystery that when Jesus came, that he confronted the scribes and the Pharisees, that he was not speaking to a secular society. He was not talking to people who didn't know anything about God. No, these are people who know God. And there's no mistaking that their entire society is about God. And the laws that they live by are about God. And they're all given in the Old Testament. And they are just consumed with their religion so that it governs every minute detail of their life. And though they make the wrong application of the law, and though they are self-righteous, and though they are hypocritical, at least they have the pretense that everything is about God. They wouldn't even know what to do with themselves. They have no life without believing that God controls their lives, which makes the complacency and the apathy of Christ today shameful, that we have the truth about Christ, we understand better, the marvelous work of Christ where they only got a glimpse of him in shadows and types and the symbols. But here we are as Christians today and we know the details. We have the recognition of the need of God in our lives and that, that, that need um, does not minutely compare our lives in the way that we live does not minutely compare to the way that the Israelites were consumed with the worship of God. Hebrews says the types, the figures, the offerings, the symbols, they're just illustrations. Those things aren't real. And so Israel sees the illustrations, they see the shadow of the real, and that shadow consumed them, and God expected complete devotion in the shadows. And the question has to be asked, then what does God expect in the real? What does He expect from people who don't have the shadows any longer, but they have the real object of their faith? Now, if they thought... If Israelites thought, we are nothing without God, then how much more should a Christian recognize that truth? And why shouldn't God be central in our lives in a greater devotion than He was to the people of Israel? Now this series start, started with the question, why are there so many sacrifices? Why all these details? What's that all about? Why does God do it this way? And here's our very simple answer, that God wanted them to know, I am and when I say I am, God wanted them to know I am everything. I am your life. And you must get every detail right. And these people got every detail right because God occupies the mind. So much that to worship God, you have to think about everything that you're going to do next. You can't fake your way through this. You've got to think through every move. Is this the way that God said to do it? Am I, am I making this sacrifice right? Am I going to be zapped like Nadab and Abihu? And that kept the mind continually focused on the Almighty. So this is the thought that was in my mind as I began to work on this sermon. And so many sacrifices done in so many ways, and we've already been through uh, two of those, and we saw just multiple things that are done, so many restrictions, so many expectations that the Jews literally had to think through everything that they did. They had to choose the right sacrifice for the right occasion. It's like going to the tool shed and choosing the right tool for the job. It has to be exactly right. So a Jew can't be mindless when he does this. The many offerings, the variety of substances there are, the different animals, 
Much is put into this, and that kept the sacrifices from being merely ritualistic. A, a, a Hebrew, a Jew, could not do this by rote. But many of our church services are exactly like that. We repeat things. We do the same thing over and over and over again so that many of our people come to church and we do what we do without thinking. We walk through the steps, we sing the songs, we have the order of our service, and everybody knows what comes next, and eventually we get to the place, well, it just happens. It just kind of happens. It's not that way with Israel. These Old Testament sacrifices cannot be approached in that way. Every step must be thought through. And then, here's what happens. When one person finally learns everything that he's supposed to do, you know what happens to him? He has a child. And now he's got to start the process all over again, explaining to this child exactly what they're supposed to do. So he goes through all this process of learning the system of worship. And what do you think is the subject matter most of the time when God said, diligently teach these things to your children? Now let's pause here for just a moment and let's just bring in the Shema, which is the core of the peace offerings. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 7. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Now what do you think that they were talking about? What were they to teach their children? Well, they taught them that God is all-consuming, all your heart, all your soul, all of your might, and they taught their children that, that largely, I mean, their subject matter is the meaning of all these sacrifices, the way these things are to be done, and the way they were to respect the God who gave them. And that reminds us that we must consider God in everything that we do. Everything in our lives is for the glory of God. And so these are the kinds of thoughts that were just loosely uh, swishing through my brain, going from side to side as I grappled with this offering. And the worst part of this is the inadequacy of conveying to you what I need to say. I know exactly what I need to say. I just don't know how to make it sound as important as it really is. Because most of the time, Christians' ears are not ready to hear this. We're not ready to hear that we are supposed to be consumed with God all of the time. We're too busy making our decisions, doing what we want to do, being where we want to be. And we're to be consumed with God. And what he wants us to do. Well, there are other thoughts that, that entered into my mind that just uh, illustrate bits and pieces of what uh, I need to get across. So as I was studying this, I came across two pieces of information that literally brought tears to my eyes. And I can't duplicate the emotion for you because when you're studying these things, it, it's going along with a combination of many other things happening at the time. And you might think that I'm a little bit crazy at times, but sometimes they're just simple things that get into the mix of what I'm doing, and they begin to crystallize what it means to be all consumed with Christ. So you see, when I'm working on a sermon, I don't always know how that sermon's going to take shape. And I don't know how it's going to get from precept to the pen and to the pulpit. And so as I was studying for this message, at the same time I was studying for the Easter sermon. Both of these were in concept stage at that time, and I was reading about the death and the resurrection of Christ, and I came across an incidental comment that someone made about the futility of life 
without Christ. And then coupled with that, there was a passing reference to an old song that was sung by Peggy Lee. Anybody remember who Peggy Lee is? Some of you know who that is? The title of her song that that came to mind, uh, that was mentioned, was this one. Is That All There Is? Anybody remember this song, Is That All There Is? And the song steps through some things that are obviously not the sum of life. And so as she sings this song, she sings about her childhood, and she sings about her house that burns in a fire. And when she saw the fire, she thought, well, is that so spectacular? Is that all there is to a fire? And then she sang about going to a circus and all the anticipation of that and the excitement of going to a circus. And yet when she got there, she found, well, there's something missing here. And so she sang, is that all there is to a circus? And then she got older and she started singing about falling in love. And she fell in love with the boy, but this boy left her. And when he did, she thought that she was going to die. But then she didn't die. And so she sang, is that all there is to love? And then finally, let me read to you the last verse of her song in its entirety. I know you must be saying to yourselves, if that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh no, not me. I'm in no hurry for the final disappointment. Because I know, just as well as I'm standing here talking to you, that when that final moment comes, and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all there is. And that is a very sad, sad song from someone who knew nothing about the purpose of life, life in Jesus Christ. This is a person who missed contentment in Christ. You know that there's never a Christian who will sing, is that all there is? Never a Christian's going to sing that, but what we will sing is, could there possibly be this much? How can I hold on to this? How can I contain all that there is? I can't take in everything there is in Christ. And with that thought, we have to be content with him he must fill us up completely because folks our vessel is too small to hold him we're going to be running over when we think about christ well peggy lee actually sang about solomon's problem without solomon's wisdom solomon said basically the same thing but when it was all said and done he came to a different conclusion now if you would take your bibles and turn to ecclesiastes chapter 2 we, we will read uh, this next Sunday morning, the entire chapter. And as I said this morning, when we started Ecclesiastes, there are some depressing things there in that first chapter. And I don't know if what I'm saying to you right now makes sense, but you're just getting thoughts in development stages, what sermons look like in development stages. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse number 4. Solomon says, I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them all, in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water there with the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. 
So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I'd labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Now, if I might, let me paraphrase Solomon's 11th verse. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and all the labor that I'd labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and so I said, Is that all there is? Now listen to the conclusion of Solomon's musing in chapter 12, if you want to turn there. When he gets down to the end of all this, close to the end, this is what he says in verses 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes 12. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now you see what Solomon says, this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. And what we learn from that is everything that you are is found in everything that God is. And that's how much we are to be consumed with God. Well, I thought about the Peggy Lee song, and I coupled that in my mind with what Solomon had to say in Ecclesiastes, and I looked at that, and, and, and we see how sad it is for people who try to find contentment in the world. And it said in, in Peggy Lee's song, there's always something missing. When you get it all, the soul is still empty. Is that all there is? And so a person who spends his life building up treasures, collecting things in this, in this life, all the things that are corrupt, what is he left with when he's done? And I thought about that. And the peace offering teaches us that it's Christ who fills us with all good things. He satisfies every part of our lives. And without that, we're nothing but empty. As Mary sang in her canticle, For he that is mighty hath done great things, holy is his name. And with that thought, I came across that second piece of information. This was a, a sermon that was preached by John Piper 17 years ago at the Passion Conference. Uh, that sermon is now known as the Seashell Sermon, uh, although the original title of it was Boasting Only in the Cross. Let me tell you a little bit about the sermon. Five minutes into this sermon, Piper said, Three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and in her retirement, partnering, partnering with Ruby, was also pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon. The brakes gave way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? And all the people in attendance at conference knew the answer to his question, and they all rang out at one time, no! And Piper affirmed, no, it's not a tragedy. And he said, I'll read to you what a tragedy is. 
And so he pulled out a page from Reader's Digest and he read this to them. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. That's a tragedy, he told the crowd. And he said, and there are people in this country spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And he said, I've got 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing, and look at my boat. And he said, don't waste your life. And then he says, the way not to waste your life is to give God for gl glory for every gift because every one, from a new car to physical safety to your own next heartbeat, is grace bought and paid for through the cross. Now, folks, that sets the stage for the peace offering. It's to give our lives in every way for the cause of Christ. It's to have communion with him always on all levels. It's to have him constantly on our minds for his glory. And that's going to be difficult, be very difficult, if you're wasting time on things that don't matter. Do you want to stand before God? And he says, well, let's examine your life's work. And you say, would you like to see my seashells? Would you like to see all the pictures of my vacations? And that's what some people in church do, vacation and collect seashells. Now this peace offering drew Israel in to consider that God is everything, that their existence is God. And so standing on a hill overlooking the camp with the smoke rising from the tabernacle and tents that are all in, in perfect alignment in the formation that God told them to be, how is it that anybody in Israel can think of anything but God? And when they followed his commandments, they were in communion with God. Well, the peace offering is introduced in chapter 3. It is a sweet savor offering, as were the burnt offering and the meal offering. Uh, and this is not, in this offering, we don't see the satisfaction of Christ's uh, death for sin. That, that's not in view here. If it was, then we'd be talking about a non-sweet savor offering. This is satisfaction because of Christ's life. Now, in the burnt offering, uh, we learned that that spoke of the dedication of Christ's life. It's sweet savor, uh, that Christ was totally dedicated to the Father's will and that his life was offered up completely. And that's why in the burnt offering, it's completely consumed by the fire of the altar. There's nothing that's left. And that demonstrates a life that's fully given to God. Then we looked at the meal offering. That speaks primarily of Christ's dedication to man. Uh, it teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves, among some of the other significant parts that we looked at uh, in, uh, of Christ's life that are symbolized in different ingredients. But the peace offering is a little bit different because here we find uh, it, it's opening up other facets of Christ's life. Now we look at fellowship and we look at communion with God. That communion is possible because of the perfect peace of the Savior. And we're not talking about peace through reconciliation as Christ reconciled us through an offering for sin. Again, that's non-sweet savor. But this is rather communion with God because of the sweetness of Christ's life. And as we model our lives after his, we enjoy fellowship with him and with the Father. And so we're not looking here at an unsaved person 
who is reconciled to God. But rather, we're talking about a Christian. We're talking about a saved person who communes with God because of the favor that God has for his son. And the reason that we're able to be a part of that communion is because we are in Christ. And he communes with us because we are in Christ. Well, we want to go to the scriptures now. And, and I had a more planned when I started developing the message we won't get into. This is our talk, so we go as far as we have time. And then um, we'll come back next time, probably talk some more. And hopefully I'll preach. But let's look at chapter 3 now in, in verses 1 through 7 where we have the peace offering described to us. Leviticus 3 verse 1, And if his oblation, his oblation, that's the gift, remember, the, the offering, if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if the offering of the herd, whether it be male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Now let me stop right there. You see, if he offers a male or a female, seems kind of odd to us, doesn't it, that we would see a, a female animal in sacrifice? It was very clear in the burnt offering that the sacrifice could not be a female. It must be a male. But then later in the sin offering, we see that there is a provision there for a female animal. So why does God allow female animals too? This offering says it can be a female and that's because the picture in the offering is communion. That in the communion of God's people, there are both male and female. There are exclusions, as we know, in certain areas of service. But no matter whether male or female, there is no distinction in fellowship with God. There's also no distinction between male and female in the forgiveness of sins. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither, neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Then verse number 2 says, And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering, and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about, and he shall offer the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver with the kidneys, it shall he take away. And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is upon the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering made by fire, of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And if his offering be for a sacrifice, a peace offering unto the Lord, be of the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offer a lamb for his offering, then shall he offer it before the Lord. Now we go down to verses 12 and 13. And if his offering be a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of it and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle the blood thereof upon the altar round about. Verses 16 and 17. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savor. All the fat is the Lord's. It shall be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings, that ye eat neither fat nor blood. Now turn a few pages to the seventh chapter, and we have more instructions. Chapter 7 and in verse number 11. Leviticus 7, verse number 11. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer unto the Lord. If he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mingled with oil, 
and unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour fried. Besides the cakes, he shall offer for his offering leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offerings. And of it, he shall offer one out of the whole oblation for a heave offering unto the Lord. Remember that? The heave offering is thrusting upward with that offering to God. It shall be the priest that sprinkleth the blood of the peace offerings. Now, the burnt offering and the meal offering, as I've said, they're both sweet savor. But the designation of sweet savor does not point out a difference between them and the peace offering, and the peace offering is also sweet savor. But the difference that makes this offering stand out from the others is that everyone who has a part in the offering also partakes of the offering. Now, let me explain that to you. Uh, in the burnt offering, you know, everything went up to, uh, to God. The individual received no part of that offering. The priest got nothing of the offering. All of it goes up to God. In the grain offering, although some of it's offered to God, that part offered to God, it's just a token amount because the main concentration of the offering is on the people, that the people share with the benefits of God's bounty. And actually, they share through the priest because it's the priest that got the part of it. But in the peace offering, the one who brings the offering gets a part of that. God gets a part of it. The priest gets a part. And later on, we'll talk about satisfaction, and we'll see there is satisfaction in this offering for everyone in multiple ways. And all of that just accentuates the first part of our talk, that God is everything all-consuming. God is the one who satisfies. So the world and everything in it consists because of God. So this is the first offering that we see where everyone gets a part of it. That here we have a one big happy communion with God, with the priest, his people, and then in another figure that we'll take up a little later on, also a special type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's another interesting distinction. If you look at what we've just read, you look at the animals. Animals can be taken from the herd or from the flock. But there's something conspicuously absent. It's the birds. There is no offering from the birds. In the burnt offering, you have birds. And you remember we talked about that, the diversity of the animals. Uh, in the burnt offering was to show that no matter what socioeconomic class that a person was in, there is a corresponding offering that goes along with their economic ability. So it's the, it's the rich who bring the bulls, the wealthy bring the bulls, the middle class bring the sheep, and the poor man brings the birds. That's the poor man's offering. But in the peace offering, there aren't any birds. So he says, is that peculiar? Does that mean poor people are left out? Is this an oversight by God? Have I ever mentioned to you that God is marvelous in his wisdom? And he has another magnificent teaching here in purposely leaving out the birds. Well, what is that? Well, the principle that he gets across is sharing. That this is a sacrifice of communion. We're taught to share our blessings with each other. And the sweet savor offerings are, are mainly concerned with the second table of the law to love your neighbor. And that aspect of the offering is seen as first in 1 John three seventeen and 18. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
Also James 2.16, And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Now there is no sacrifice of the birds for the poor, because this is the opportunity for the Israelite to show his love for his fellow man. There is only one way that a poor man could eat of this sacrifice, and that is by invitation. That an Israelite must invite the poor man and his family to come and share with them. Now, to me, this is one of those aha moments. Why didn't I think of that? And the reason I didn't is because I'm not God. Only God thinks of things like this. Now, ultimately, we know that these lessons are supposed to filter down to us that are in the church today. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, these things are our examples. And so we see this very thing, the peace offering, being played out in Christianity in the first early church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem was very poor. So what did they do? Well, those that were wealthy sold their land and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We see this in Acts 4, 33 to 35. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the price of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And then in the next verses, what comes immediately after that is where we, where we read about the the, the first time, the distinguishing characteristics of that blessed man Barnabas, where it says he sold his land and he brought it and the apostles distributed the money to the poor. But then immediately after this, you have another example, and this is the contrast of selfishness that comes along in chapter 5. And that's Ananias and Sapphira who pretended and lied. And so what they did is they dissed the peace offering. And so God killed them. Now, the activity of sharing promotes fellowship. That's part of our fellowship of the church. This is communion in the church to share with one another, and that's pictured in the offering. In Acts chapter 2, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now what we're looking at then, in the big, big picture, as I said at the very beginning, is contentment. That the peace offering pictures communion. Fellowship and communion. All parties have a part in this. Everybody walks away satisfied. And that's the lesson that we're going to examine later as we go through this offering. So I have more on this. And we're just talking tonight. And I'm through talking to you. So we're going to end the conversation. It's been nice talking to you. Uh, but I'm ready to stop. And we're going to come back. because You're just getting thoughts that I was putting together. And we're going to get this organized eventually and uh, get it into uh, sermon points so we can really find out what this offering is all about. So you're just getting shakes, rattles, and rolls that go around in the preacher's brain while trying to figure out a sermon.
And that's what sermon preparation is all about. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for, for Jesus Christ. Communion that we have with him. Lord, I honestly, and you know it, I don't know a way to get across how important the peace offering was. And, and how to describe, again, um, how Israel was all consumed with you. That every single day waking up this is what they saw sacrifices and sacrifices the tabernacle the smoke rising from the tabernacle all of that going on animals being slain blood being sprinkled their whole lives are consumed with that and how how shameful that we should be feel about ourselves that we don't consume ourselves with you having all the knowledge that we have of what Christ did for us. Why aren't we as consumed as they were? Lord, teach us that as we look through this, um, this peace offering over the next few weeks. Bless us, Lord. Be with your people. We give you the praise. Thank you for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.